Good morning again. Good morning. There we go. Okay. Someday I'm going to figure out this microphone, but the, the screen points away from me, not up. I don't know why. Anyway, it's good to be with you this morning and to be opening God's Word. We are continuing in our study of Colossians, and we're in the middle of chapter 2. And chapter 2 is the beginning of Paul's main argument in the letter. And last week we looked at the first section of this argument, and the theme was, we, we talked about what it means to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and how we can know that we're being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, because Paul's argument is that all you need is Jesus, and there are people that are offering the Colossians other things and telling them that other things are necessary, and Paul is disputing that. And the reason, we, last week we talked about this fact that the reason the Colossians are susceptible to those kinds of messages and those kinds of of um, distractions is because they don't necessarily always feel fulfilled. They're not sure. They don't have. They don't constantly have a warm, fuzzy feeling or whatever they we expect being fulfilled in Christ to feel like. And so we're just not sure. Like Paul, the gospel he preached said we have Jesus. Now said we have the presence of God, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it. And Christians have struggled with that throughout time. And so Paul, in chapter two, he starts by addressing the fact that Jesus Christ has fulfilled us, and then he moves into explaining why that means we should disregard certain temptations. Today, we're going to be taking the very center of that argument, which means we're going to finish, the the first half of our passage is going to be the end of that argument about the fulfillment that comes from Jesus, and then we're going to look at the beginning of how he applies that to the different messages and temptations that the Colossians are receiving or, or being tempted by. And so we're going to kind of, we're going to w- look at the hinge that connects these two. And so this will help us to transition into the next section where Paul starts talking about how we should live because we've been fulfilled by Jesus. So I'll encourage you, if you're able, uh, to stand for the reading of God's word. And if you have your Bible, to keep it open to Colossians chapter 2. Today's reading begins in verse 13. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions and of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on the head, onto the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So Paul begins in this passage by, I mean, we're in the middle of an argument, actually. But he's, there's kind of a central claim that he makes here, which is that, when you, that they were dead in their trespasses, and now they're alive. And as I read this passage and I tried to work out, this one actually challenged me to work out exactly what Paul is saying, how all the things that he says in here really link together. Because at a certain point, he seems to change subjects 
and then he kind of switches back. And I think that when it looks like, when, that, when we get that impression, that probably means that I'm not seeing something that actually connects them together, because I don't think that Paul was, was, he, he was, he was a very logical thinker. He wasn't very scattershot. And I think that the key is understanding what he means when he says that you were dead and now you're alive. Because if you're like me, when the New Testament talks about being dead while you're still alive, I take that metaphorically because you're spiritually dead. But I don't actually know what it really means to be spiritually dead. It's not like I have a spirit that feels dead. Um, I don't, you know, and so usually what that's taken for as a metaphor it effectively means I'm metaphorically dead. I'm as good as dead or something like that. And, I, and, and then when you try and evangelize to someone and convince them that they're dead, but they don't have anything that feels dead, then it's just a difference of opinion, right? Then you're arguing metaphors. And I don't think that's what Paul means. I don't think that Paul is saying they're metaphorically dead. I think he means that they were dead in a very... Uh, concrete way. And the reason why we don't see that is because we live in a culture that is insulated from death. We live in a culture, first of all, where we are so saturated with the gospel that even when we turn away from Jesus, we still tend to hold on to the Christian mentality towards death without reason. And if you've been to a funeral where they, uh, you know, there's just vague hope that good things happen after death, but no actual foundation for it, because we've abandoned faith in Jesus. But we just, you know, they do this on TV all the time. Everybody assumes that the person who's died is in a better place. Without any basis for it, we just hold on to that. But the other thing is that our culture does everything it can to insulate us from death and from what mortality actually means. In Greek culture and the culture that Paul's writing, and basically every culture other than modern Western culture, that wasn't the case. And so we're going to need to do a little bit of a shift in, in mentality and kind of think of things the way they would have. So the first question that I want to ask is, how were the Colossians dead already? One of the themes that we don't see drawn out of Paul as much as he actually delves into is the theme of mortality. Paul has a lot to say about mortality and what it means to, about, for us that we are mortal. And that was one of, the, one of the major issues for the Greeks at the time. And really, again, for every civilization outside of modern, um, the modern West, where we've so well insulated ourselves from death, the problem of mortality was a major one to deal with. Because being mortal means, if we're honest, and if we actually face it, which we typically don't. If you're like me, you get a bit of a tight feeling when you start to think about this. But here's what mortality actually means before the gospel, before we put God into the picture. What it means is that you are condemned to death and irrelevance. Death is not, see, we think of death as just something that will happen to us someday a long ways in the future when we're really, really, really old and when it's appropriate. That, that's just when that happens, and that's, you know, that's a thing that will happen later. What we don't think about, first of all, is it can happen anytime. And second of all, what we don't want to think about is what happens after that. Because what, what the Greeks were really aware of, and, and most societies are aware of, is that you die, and the people who knew you remember you for a while, and then they die. And especially in cultures where most things weren't written down, that's kind of the end of your impact on the world. And, and you're forgotten. 
And at a certain point, it's as if you had never existed. You're just erased. When you read uh, ancient writings, the people are continually motivated by this. Some of the ancient, oldest writings we have, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, is all about a person's desire to, to thrive against mortality because of what it says about who we are. You're dead already because it's already settled. You're going to die and you're going to be forgotten. Unless you're amazing and you do something really, really important, which has been the motive for so many people to do really big and often terrible things. Alexander conquered the known world because he wanted to be known as the great for all time. Right? And this, this is a challenge that people are faced with that I'm going to die and I'm going to be forgotten. Greek tragedy was all about the fact that you can't overcome fate. That this is just what's going to happen. So you are as good as dead. Now, human beings, uh, modern psychologists will tell you that a lot of what we do in our culture is meant to fight against this. Because we can't change whether we're going to die. But we can change whether we're going to be irrelevant. And so our societies are structured so that we come to these mutual agreements that if we do certain things, will be remembered. And that drives a lot of our motivation to participate in societies. Right? So we know by mutual contract that there are, there's a system of things I can do, and depending on what I do, I'll be remembered for more or less time. If I become president of the United States, that's a really big accomplishment. Right? Then I, really get, I get remembered because my name, I'll be on those posters that they put in elementary schools with all the presidents in it, right? And if I, if I have a platinum album, I get remembered a certain amount. Or if I, I get a, you know, we have walks on, the, on, the, on sidewalks or stars on sidewalks, and we have all these ways to remember people. You know, we say that if you give your life for your country, we make a big deal out of that because it's important, and we want people to see the value of it. We do all these different things, uh, and, and then it, it even seeps into our careers, right? We're motivated to reach certain levels in our careers because if you do this, you get remembered, if you do this, your life matters more. And it, we, our societies build these up because here's the thing. You, by definition, you cannot control how you're remembered. They're remembering you. You're not there anymore. So we have to have these mutual agreements. And that means that the only way for you to transcend your death is if, by serving these systems that are bigger than you. You have to make them happy so that they will remember you when you're gone. And so Paul would say that these, Galatia, or these Colossians are enslaved by the powers that control the meaning of their lives. Because there are all these systems out there that decide whether their lives matter or not. And there's all this pressure to conform to those systems so that their lives will have meaning. In Ephesians, Paul says something similar to Colossians. We're going to, Ephesians 2 is very similar to this part of Colossians 2. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked, according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Now, what is the power of the spirit of the air? Well, Paul continually refers back to death, but probably the clearest statement of this is actually in the book of Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews says, since the children had flesh and, com and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. 
The problem is that we are enslaved by the fact that without God, we have no control over the length or the significance of our lives. And so we will serve the powers that make us feel significant. We will serve the powers that give us a way to matter. So by default, the Gentiles are serving these other powers. But Paul highlights something else about them. He also mentions the circumcision of their flesh, or the uncircumcision of their flesh. And here he's talking about the fact that they are Gentiles. Because in the Old Testament, God does give the Israelites a way to address their their irrelevance, the problem of irrelevance. But the Gentiles don't get to be a part of it. So the Gentiles were alienated from the creator and his purposes. Because if you look at what the law of Moses offers, one of the places where we get confused is that sometimes we think the old covenant was about salvation, like eternal salvation. If you kept the law, you got to live forever. It's not addressing the problem of that problem of death. The law of Moses deals with the problem of irrelevance. This is what God says um, in Deuteronomy. He says, Today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, statutes and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Notice the promises are about this life, but they are about, first of all, having a prosperous life, having a large family that will carry on your legacy and being a part of God's purposes in the world. So that if you are a child of God, if you're part of the people of God, you matter. You have eternal relevance. And so if they keep the law of Moses, they're able to be part of that. Now, they're not going to be able to keep the law of Moses. But also, the Gentiles aren't even allowed to try. Because the law of Moses has to set the Israelites aside, which means the Gentiles can't be part of it. So Paul summarizes it this way in Ephesians. He says, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. That's what it means to be dead already. Without hope, without God, there's nothing you can do to change it. So you're as good as dead now. But God made them alive. How did God make them alive? Well, it says in verse 13, he begins by saying, but God forgave us. He switches from you, talking about the Gentiles, to us, to acknowledge that the Israelites who were in the covenant didn't do any better because they couldn't keep it, even though they, got, they were in. But then he, he says he forgave us and he eradicated the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. First of all, there's a translation thing going on here where, they, where it says the certificate of debt. There's some debate about what that means because the actual Greek word is handwriting. And so there's two interpretations. One interpretation is it's like an IOU, that there's just some generic debt that we owe because we've sinned, and that's what's being nailed to the cross. The other interpretation, which I think is more consistent with what Paul says in Ephesians, as we'll see, is that the handwriting is the writing of the law. Because what that tells us is that he doesn't just take our debt and nail it to the cross, but he takes the whole legal system that excludes Gentiles from the law, and he nails it there. 
Because we have to remember how the, the law of Moses worked. The law of Moses said that they, were gonna, they had this uh, covenant and the Israelites were supposed to keep it and they'd get life. But if they broke it, they would get death. But then once that death had been dealt with, then God would bring a new covenant. And that's the tension they were living in, that the old covenant had not been resolved. When, when Moses said, I put before you life and death, that was if you, you can live or you can die by, lose, by the breaking of the covenant, I'll send you into exile, and then you'll pay the penalty of death. And once that's over, then I'll call you back together and I'll give you a new covenant. That issue needs to be resolved, that fact that the covenant hasn't been paid. And so what he says is that God took the law of Moses and all the debt that's associated with it and nailed it to the cross. It doesn't mean that he didn't forgive our debt, but it means he abolished the whole accounting system and our debt went with it. Because here's the interesting thing that happens. When it says that, I, I, this is the only place where he uses the word handwriting, and I think it's because he's doing wordplay. Because when he mentions handwriting being nailed to the cross, what does that make you think of? There was a sign nailed to the cross above Jesus' head. And what did it say? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now they weren't, at least in, they weren't intentionally declaring Jesus King of the Jews. They were announcing his crime. That is his crime. Essentially, he set himself up as King of the Jews, so he's a rebel. So Jesus is executed for rebellion. But here's the irony of it, okay? Let's, let's imagine just for argument's sake, that Jesus really is king of the Jews. And let's imagine that God has said that the king of the Jews will be appointed king of the nations. And they just executed the king of the Jews, the king of the nations. What crime have they just committed? Rebellion. So who's actually the criminal and who's committed the crime depends on who Jesus is. And what does the resurrection prove? It proves that Jesus really is the king of the Jews. He really is the king of the nations. And that's what the apostles say over and over again in Acts. They go around announcing to people the good news that Jesus is alive. That means Jesus is king. So the, the nations rebelled and Jesus died for that rebellion. Willingly. It wasn't that he couldn't escape them. He willingly died for their rebellion. So what we see in that moment is Jesus resolving the, the, um, the covenant because the death that was needed to resolve it happened. Jesus died a rebel's death on behalf of rebels. And the effect of that, the, the effect of abolishing the covenant is not just forgiving our debts, but it's also changing is removing the barriers that kept the Gentiles away from God. This is how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. He says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He abolishes the law, and by abolishing the law, he is abolishing the barriers that separate the Gentiles from God's people. So that now anyone 
can be a part of God's people. Anyone can have what the inheritance of the people of God. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So the first thing Jesus did to make them alive is he forgave their sins and abolished the law that excluded them. Which means that now Gentiles can be a part of God's people and God's people are never irrelevant. So in this in, in this way, he has given them a way to matter eternally because they are part of God's purposes. They are part of what God's doing in the world. But then Paul says something else that's kind of weird. And this is where it's, he's, it's almost like he's changing subjects. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by dis, and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now, if you read this passage and you think of the crucifixion, which is what Paul was just talking about, you realize that an eyewitness to the crucifixion would say that you had this backwards. They translated that word disarmed. It actually means disrobed. But in the context of a triumph, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, it, it would include taking off their armor, their fancy clothes, taking away their weapons. And so uh, disarmed is an important part of it. But if you think about what you would have seen at the crucifixion, you would have seen Jesus disarmed by the rulers and authorities. You would have seen them disgrace him publicly. And then the translation here is not quite right. It says he triumphed over them. And for us, triumphing means winning. It's actually, he celebrated a triumph. A triumph was a parade that a Roman general was given as a high honor. Um, So if you won a great battle, as a general, you got to come back to Rome and you got a parade. And at the end of the parade would be the, the highest ranking survivor of the people that you, ex, that you defeated. And at the culmination of the parade, you would take them to a rock, a, a, a hill, and throw them off of it. Or find some other flashy way of executing them. That's a triumph. It was a parade. So what he's actually saying is, it's not, just, it's not referring to the winning the battle, it's the humiliating them through a parade. And you can think of, they did that to Jesus, right? They made him walk through the city. And all these things happened to Jesus. And that's what a crucifixion was meant to do. A crucifixion was the absolute pinnacle of the power of the authorities, uh, the power of death that the authorities had. Because crucifixion wasn't just a really painful way to kill a person. It was a way to disgrace them, to humiliate them, to expose them as powerless and abandoned. That's why it was, so, it was so humiliating that they would not, you could not crucify a Roman citizen because that would insult Rome. The fact that a Roman citizen was crucified would mean that Rome was, couldn't save them. And Rome can save them, they just chose not to. But that, it was meant to show that you are powerless, you are abandoned, nobody cares about you, nobody will remember you, you have been erased. And that's what they were saying about Jesus. So they did everything they possibly could, not just to kill Jesus, but to erase him and to make him irrelevant and to declare to the world he means nothing, he did nothing, forget about him. It's already like he never existed. So they did everything they could to erase him. And three days later, God brought him back to life. And what that does is it turns the tables. Because any, remember, they're ta- he's talking to people who are living under the exact same government that did that. 
And he's telling them, look, they, the very thing you're afraid of that keeps you in line, yeah, they did it to Jesus and it didn't stick. It didn't work. They could not control the story of Jesus. They could not control the fate of Jesus. They could not change his destiny. They did everything they could to keep him in line and to destroy what he was doing. And it didn't work because he's alive now. And that's why it says, that's why in Hebrews he says that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. Because death doesn't have the power that it has anymore. Because death wasn't just the end of your life. It was the, it controlled the meaning of your life, the importance of your life. Your mortality defined who you were and people could use that against you and they couldn't use it against Jesus. First Corinthians, Paul also says, uh, none of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had understood that they were exposing their powerlessness by killing Jesus and it not sticking, they never would have done it in, in the first place. They wouldn't have taken the risk of being exposed as ultimately powerless. So what Jesus did is he exposed the powers of the world as Powerless, or what God did was he exposed them as powerless to control the destiny of Jesus. And that matters for us because of the point that Paul has been making throughout chapter 2 and throughout his writings, which is that God shared the life and destiny of Jesus with all who followed him. See, this is the key math equation for Paul. It's uh, um, the direct, uh, we're getting the term, um, but basically, what's true of Jesus becomes true of those who are in Jesus. There's a logical principle for that. I forget what it is, but someone will tell me afterward. Um, what's true of Jesus becomes true of his people. This is what Paul has been arguing. If we go back and look at the end of last week's passage and the beginning of this one, it says, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. What's true of Jesus is true of us because we become a part of his destiny. We become a part of what he is doing. So what become, now both problems of death are solved because in Christ, we receive eternal life and we receive eternal significance because we're part of the thing that matters the most. And I want us to understand what this really means because for Paul, the resurrection is so important because it changes the way we do math. Right now, our mortality forces us constantly into a, into a, uh, a mindset of having to earn things. You have to earn everything because you have to be worthy of being remembered. You have to be worthy of considering, because you don't have control over it, right? Only other people can tell you that you matter. So you have, to do, you have to earn that place in society's eyes. Everything is about earning your significance and earning your value. And that's how we get enslaved to all these systems. And what Paul is saying is that when we receive life, the life of Christ, it doesn't matter anymore. Because not, not, think of it this way. Imagine 200 years into 
your eternal reward. And imagine looking back at your life before glory, that little, that little you know, period of time before when you were mortal. What will matter then? How much will you care then about whether, what society thought of you? How much will you care then about what you achieved in your career or on social media or like all the things that seem so important to us now? How much will you care? Now, I don't think that nothing from our life before glory will matter to us then. But I think what we will care about is the way we served Jesus, the way we loved others, the way we lived back then that reflects where we spent eternity. Because Paul says about the powers that they're all fading away. Their time of, of what limited power they have is, is also limited. There will be a time when there are no more governments, no more companies, no more social media, no more any of the systems that we buy into to give us meaning. They won't exist anymore. And what will matter is the place that we have in the kingdom of God. And so what, we, what Paul is telling us, and this is a mind shift that we all have to make that is so incredibly difficult to make, is we have to shift out of the earning it mindset. We have to shift out of the idea that I matter because of what I accomplish. That I matter because of the respect that I earn. That I matter when other people consider me good enough. That I matter when I achieve those signposts, those trinkets, those things that make a person worthy. Every one of us is programmed to face life that way and we will have those instincts in us until the day we die. But what the gospel teaches us is not to trust them because that's not the reality. And that's what Paul demonstrates as he begins to apply this to the situations that the Colossians are facing. Because the very next thing he says is, therefore don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. See, God had given the Israelites a series of holidays and observances and ways to commune with him and live in his presence in this limited way in anticipation of living with Jesus. And what did they turn it into? An opportunity for scorekeeping. The holidays are not just gracious opportunities God gave us to experience his presence and his blessings. They are obligations that you must meet in order for God to forgive you, in order for God to like you, because that's how people treat each other. So that must be what God is doing. And so the Jews or the Jewish Christians or people in, in, Colossia, in Colossae were saying, hey, you may have Jesus, but you're missing the festivals. I checked the attendance sheet. You didn't sign in on those days. Your, your attendance is too low. God's, God's not very happy with you. Because again, we're assuming that God is like human beings. He's saying, don't let people judge you for that. Because that's not the world we live in. That's not the reality of who God is. You don't need to do more to be reconciled to God. Now, sometimes other people will tell you you need to do more. And sometimes your own heart will tell you that you need to do more. But you do not need to do more 
to be reconciled to God. The Bible is actually very clear and very simple about what it takes to be reconciled to God. Some things the Bible is kind of hazy on, right? Like how are the, how's the world going to end? Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. The particulars, there's a lot of room to disagree. But what does it take to be reconciled to God? You need to give your allegiance to Christ. You need to submit to him. You need to confess your, your sin and the difference between who you are and who you're supposed to be. And you submit to Jesus. And if you are with Jesus, that's what you need. On the other hand, he also says, one who eats, oh, sorry, this is an application of that principle. This is when he's writing to the Romans and they're having the same kind of tension except there they're throwing the stones both ways. The people who aren't following the law are, are looking down on the people who are still following the law as weak-minded. And he says, one who eats, uh, non-kosher food, must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge one who does. Why? Because God has accepted him. If God has accepted him, what, what more do we care about? If God accepts them, my acceptance doesn't matter any more than that. So don't let people tell you that you're not good enough for God just because you're not good enough for them. That's not how God deals with people. And then Paul says, let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. So evidently, there were people in Colossae who were very, um, to use a, a word the way we use it, they were very charismatic, which was not in itself the problem, but the problem is they were saying, hey, we're having these experiences, that makes us better than you. You're not really experiencing God's presence unless you're having visions of God's presence. You're not really close to God unless you have, go into trances and you see his, the, the heavenly temple and that kind of thing. That's what really brings you close to God. So you may have Jesus, but you don't have, you don't have the experiences. Maybe you're not fasting enough. Maybe you're not getting dehydrated enough to go into a trance. I don't know. Whatever it is, you're not, you're not good enough to really be close to God. I'm, I'm closer to him than you are. And Paul says, you don't need to do more to enter God's presence. You don't need to do more to be reconciled to him, and you don't need to do more to be closer to him. How often do we drift from God, and we even call it that, drifting from God, as if the fact that I'm not praying as much and I'm struggling in my faith means that somehow I am not actually as close to, that's not how the presence of God, right? Like God's everywhere, but we think I am farther from God. If you are, it's only on your side. He is not farther from you. Because the author of Hebrews talks about this theme a lot, about our access to the presence of God. And he says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. He says that our hope in being reconciled to God and, and our hope in Jesus is like an anchor. And where is that anchor? It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. It is in the presence of God. We have an anchor in the presence of God and we're tied to it. You can't get away from it if you try. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are as close to God as Jesus is because you are in Christ. And you don't need to do other things. Now, that does, what, what changes is how close we are to his will how obedient we are to the way he wants us to be living. And so if you're feeling distant from God, then you may need to get closer to him in the sense of getting closer to the way he wants you to live. 
but you, there aren't, you are as close to God as Jesus is if you are in Jesus. That's just how it works. It's pass-fail. If you're in Jesus, you're with God. Now, when I used to hear this point made, maybe it was just me being very simple-minded, but what I would often take away from that is to say, well, if it's pass-fail, then that means it doesn't matter what I do at all. What I heard was, it doesn't, I don't actually need to be changed. I just need to say the words I need to get in, and then it's all, that's it. And that really frustrated me, because I didn't want to be left in my sin. I wanted to do better, but that didn't seem to be one of God's priorities. It seemed to be that he just wanted me to get in and wait to collect on my prize. But that's not what Paul is saying. Because Paul, here's what Paul says about the people who have been so focused on the rule keeping and on having the right experiences to get them closer to God. He says, they don't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. They are so focused on these other things that they're not holding on to Jesus. And Jesus is the one that actually gives us the growth. So they're in danger of losing that growth because they're chasing the wrong things. There is something that you need to do. But what you need to do is to hold on to Christ. Remember I told you last week that baptism is not the end of the story, it's the beginning. For me in my marriage with Casey, getting married was the beginning of a journey. Certainly not the end. And that's what it is for us to follow Jesus. And this is what Paul has been saying throughout Colossians and will continue to say, and this might actually be, um, the, we could call this the theme of Colossians. In chapter one, he says, now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Notice that here's the, here's the danger is that when people say you need Jesus and, those ands will pull you away from Jesus. The other things will pull you away from Jesus and you need to stick to Jesus. In chapter two, he says, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. You got in by Jesus, so stick with Jesus. And that does mean that we need to be transformed. It does mean we need to become more like Jesus, but we don't do that by earning, by accomplishing, by, by getting the trinkets or by getting the, the pin that says I've been to Sunday school every day this year. That's not what it means. What it means is being close to Jesus, being transformed to be like Jesus. It's the trajectory that you're on in becoming more like Christ. And oftentimes when we pursue the trinkets, they lead us away from Jesus. So on the back of your outline, there are these questions that I, where I want us to land as we take this into our context. The first question is, are you alienated from God? Because that's our default position. That's where we start is alienated from God. And the question is, have you been brought near? Have you embraced the gift of Christ that brings you near to God? And if you haven't, today is the day to embrace that gift. And I would encourage you to 
to come talk to me after the service or fill it out on the red card to let us know. Or if you're online, get a hold of us or talk to a Christian that you know and trust. But today is the best day for you to be brought near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But even if you have been alienated or if you have been reconciled to God, the question is still relevant. What powers are you serving? What, what are you, where are you trying to find your meaning? Here's a helpful way to think about it. When you're faced with a decision where you could achieve something that will get you remembered, or, but you have to compromise your character, you have to do something that you know you're not supposed to, what do you choose? How hard is it for you to decide not to lie in order to accomplish something? Those are the kinds of things that reveal to us what powers we're serving. And as you see that, as you look over your own life and you look at the powers that you're serving, remember what Paul tells us, that every power, every authority, every system other than Jesus is passing away. And think about what you will wish you had done when you look back on this life 200 years into glory. I'm not saying it's easy, It's the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it is what we're called to, and it's the journey that we're on. And finally, how tightly are you holding on to Jesus? Because you don't need to earn reconciliation. You don't need to earn a place in God's presence. You just need to be in Christ. And that means committing your life to him. And Jesus doesn't do the earning it thing either but he does call you to be committed to his vision and his purpose and to be on that trajectory with him. I'm going to encourage you to really think about those questions and and think about what your next step would be as a disciple of Jesus to to continue on in, in the way he wants you to grow, the way he's calling you to grow. In the seat backs in front of you, we have cards. One of them is a connect card. There's a grow card and a serve card. And each one of them has different next steps that you can take through our congregation. You could get baptized or place your membership. Um, you could sign up for our class that we're going to do about that. You can become part of a small group where we help build each other up and, and learn together what it means to follow Jesus. Or you can join a serve team, which is where we get concrete ways to love others like Jesus and to act out this mission that we've been given encourage you to consider what the next step is for you in following Jesus as we stand and sing our final song. Please join us as we sing.